0: This is the Nietzsche Podcast. Quote Socrates knew what had to be done. He wanted death. He had the most magnificent opportunity to demonstrate his domination of human fear and weakness, and also the dignity of his divine mission. Grote says that death took him away in complete majesty and glory. As the Sun descends in the tropic lands the instincts are overcome intellectual clarity rules life and chooses death all systems of morality in antiquity concern themselves with either reaching or conceiving the heights of this act the last exemplar of the sages that know is Socrates as the evoker of the fear of death the wise as the conqueror of the instincts by means of wisdom now comes a new age of the sages commencing with Plato." End quote. That was from Friedrich Nietzsche, as quoted from his lectures at Basel on the Pre-Platonic Philosophers, specifically the lecture on Socrates. Of these single-minded sages, the Pre-Platonics, as Nietzsche calls them, Socrates is the final figure. He's a man whose worldview is dominated by a singular fixation On virtue. Socrates was a philosopher of ancient Athens. He went about questioning the beliefs of the various authorities in the city. He accordingly gained a notable following of mostly young men. The people of Athens had varying opinions about Socrates, though he was largely disliked and was lambasted in a popular comedic play by Aristophanes. He was seen by many as a troublemaker, as a trickster, or as an inconvenience. Socrates, nevertheless, had a lengthy and rather prestigious teaching career. He mentored the great military genius Alcibiades, who, as a matter of fact, later betrayed Athens by siding with the Spartans in the Peloponnesian War. Socrates lived to see many political changes in his life. He became friends with some of the members of Athens' oligarchy called the Thirty Tyrants, This oligarchy would eventually be overthrown by a democratic government over the course of Socrates' own lifetime. Then at the age of 70, Socrates was accused of corrupting the youth and impiety against the gods of the city. In this infamous incident, the first great philosopher is put on trial, convicted, and sentenced to death. He was executed by being made to drink hemlock, a poison nietzsche had a great deal to say about socrates over his career most of it critical some of it downright scathing one could argue that the attack on socrates is perhaps one of the most intriguing things about nietzsche since the world of philosophy always treated socrates as a kind of idol we're going to complicate this picture of nietzsche's interpretation of socrates though And we're going to do it by looking at this earlier period of Nietzsche's work during his academic career. As we'll see when we look at a couple of excerpts from this lecture, Nietzsche is not without his criticisms of Socrates, even during this period. And the way that Socrates dies, which is central to Socrates' apology, is central to that criticism throughout his career. But we also see in this work why Nietzsche has a respect for Socrates. Admittedly, a grudging respect, a complex and nuanced respect, but it's there nonetheless. Before I begin sketching that out, however, I do want to make clear the most damning aspect of Nietzsche's criticism of Socrates. When Socrates is convicted, so the story goes, he's given the opportunity to suggest a punishment for himself. He suggests instead that he should be rewarded. And when this is rejected, he's sentenced to death. His followers offer him a chance to escape, and he refuses. Instead, Socrates says he will bear the punishment, and in fact, that he owes a sacrifice to the god of medicine, indicating that death is the cure to his current condition. The implication being that life is a disease and death the cure. For Nietzsche, this is the worst aspect of what he calls the problem of Socrates. Socrates devalues life. Perhaps this criticism of Socrates could be understood not so much as a criticism of Socrates the man, but Socrates as the martyr. Socrates as he has been idealized by us, the lovers of philosophy, who have construed him as the martyr for his truth. The romanticism we display toward martyrdom, which is perhaps influenced by Christianity permeating Western thought for thousands of years. But as we heard in that lecture, even Nietzsche seems to write of Socrates' death in admiring tones here. Nietzsche here likens Socrates' death in another part of the lecture to the noble soul who throws himself into harm's way in order to be true to themselves or to the commandments of their heart. That Socrates' death was perhaps not the rejection of life, but the commitment to virtue and the attitude. Not that he would choose truth over life and die for the truth's sake, but rather he would live for the truth and practice the virtue of honesty regardless of the consequences, without fear of the consequences, without a regard for whether that consequence would be death. Having conquered, as Nietzsche argues, his instincts, the baser impulses of cowardice or the flight response in the face of danger he can live in such full commitment to his principles that even if this leads to his own death he doesn't have a care for that nevertheless even within this lecture there is the sense that socrates quote wanted death that he brought it on himself that he invited his own demise in some way and it is true that many have argued that if he had tried a bit harder to win over his judges and play by their rules, so to speak, Socrates might have escaped with his life. Nietzsche says in this same lecture, quote, We must consider his grand defense speech this way. He is speaking before posterity. What an incredibly meager majority convicts him. Of 557 persons, some six or seven more than half. Xenophon says explicitly, quote, Though he might easily have been acquitted by his judges if he had but in a slight degree adopted any of these customs. Socrates probably brought this pronouncement on himself intentionally. And so the sense that Nietzsche had for Socrates' motivations is important for understanding why he criticizes Socrates so savagely later. But what I want to try to do is perhaps reconcile it with his overall attitude. Expressed in this lecture, insofar as Socrates' death is arguably practical. As Nietzsche argues in his lecture, Socratic philosophy is entirely pragmatic. Quote, it is hostile to all knowledge unconnected to ethical implications. Socrates' death is therefore a consummation of his life's principles, his commitment to be true to who he is and what he believes. Socratic philosophy is universal and popular. That is to say, it dispenses with the idea of genius or knowledge or the individual certainty of this wise, solitary philosopher embodied in, for example, Heraclitus. Knowledge to Socrates is freely available to everyone because the capacity to reason is available to everyone. The Socratic conviction in Nietzsche's words is that, quote, knowledge and morality can join, end quote. Thus, death was not The point, but only a means for Socrates. The point was to give a demonstration of virtue, his commitment to the truth, and in his defense of himself and his life to practice what he preaches, stand against the ethical norms of the sophists, the popular teachers of rhetoric, and thus stand against these oratorical conventions of the time, in which one simply attempts to persuade by any means, uh, without regard for what the truth was of what one was speaking whether there was truth behind their words or not it was all about the mere appearance we might say and socrates is standing for uh, in some sense the opposite of that and over the course of this trial uh so- this is where we have in full elaboration of socrates's claim of having a daemon, a benevolent spirit who spoke to him through his conscience That would stop socrates if he ever began to speak falsely or in a manipulative manner abusing the truth rather than serving the truth he therefore resolves to speak the truth regardless of what will happen if he does so and knowing that this will likely eventually mean his death that's his own account given over the course of the apology and he construes this commitment as devotion to the god apollo later nietzsche regards this as an indication of the pathology of Socrates, the will to truth at any cost, even at the cost of one's own life. But here, early Nietzsche seems to offer the perspective that Socrates' death is a manifestation of virtue's conquest over what is animal and man. And so you could regard it as Socrates offering man a path of elevation into the no longer animal, the ability to overcome ourselves as we are now. As for why nietzsche changes in his view of socrates and later treats him rather savagely we could look to a number of factors first as we mentioned the philosophical descendants of socrates his epigone as well as recent and contemporary philosophers they got socrates wrong in the eyes of nietzsche nietzsche's criticism of socrates could be seen as simply instrumental to the purpose of shaking philosophers out of simple-minded socrates worship and also Nietzsche's struggle against the path taken by his student Plato. Plato makes the physical world completely worthless. He elevates the concept to the highest degree of reality, which instantiates metaphysics into our thought, makes metaphysics more real than physics. Nietzsche's struggle with Socrates could be argued to simply be a part of his broader struggle against Platonism we might also suggest that Nietzsche came to recognize Socrates as something more than merely a philosopher. He's also a symptom of a deeper problem specifically in historical Athens, but more generally um, it plays out over and over again in world history. In Nietzsche's view, the problem of societal decline, Socrates is one such symptom or signifier that arrives with the coming of this problem and Socrates stands for the incisive knife of skepticism, in some sense. Skepticism only arises when society and its sacred beliefs and institutions have become illegitimate or questionable. Socrates is a manifestation of the decline of a civilization's confidence in itself. The later writings of Nietzsche emphasize these aspects of Socrates, which Nietzsche finds problematic. Indeed, He names Socrates as the forerunner and standard bearer of the entire problem of science, as he sees it. If we consider, as Nietzsche does, that untruth could potentially be beneficial for life, that life might thrive off falsehoods and illusions that could exist within culture or within the collective psyche, then the arrival of a Socrates and this scientific skeptical worldview could potentially be supremely harmful. These are the kind of thoughts that Nietzsche will go on to eventually entertain. But again, I would suggest that these later views do not invalidate his earlier views. And I think they can be allowed to stand side by side. Nietzsche's perspective on Socrates is multiple. In as many ways as he finds him admirable, Nietzsche also believes Socrates to be harmful. None of these vantage points can really be treated as final. And certainly not for the simple reason that one of these perspectives occurs later in time in Nietzsche's life than the other perspective, as if every progression in thought necessarily leads to a more insightful perception or a more correct assessment. Indeed, the different perspectives that Nietzsche takes on Socrates can hardly be considered as a simple progression, in that while his ideas on Socrates certainly develop, he wavers in his assessment of him, sometimes in the very same book. In The Gay Science, we find about as much praise for Socrates as blame. He gets an entire section devoted to him in Twilight of Idols, uh, mostly treating him extremely negatively. But this is directly after Beyond Good and Evil and The Genealogy of Morality, in which figures like Kant, Schopenhauer, Plato, and Renan are all treated far more harshly than Socrates. And on the balance, Socrates probably has more positive words said about him. And so it's not as clear of a picture, and I don't agree with the sort of plain reading that the later it occurs in Nietzsche's uh, canon of work, the more correct interpretation that it is. And so today we're going to consider Socrates from this earlier angle as the first philosopher of life. A philosopher whose wisdom was intended to be practical for life and whose death is even an inducement to life that is to say an example of how to overcome oneself and commit to the commandment of your heart live your virtue without fear of the harm that will come to you oppose the foolishness of the majority if Socrates in prison after his conviction at the trial the man who calls life a disease is perhaps Socrates at his worst This is Socrates on trial. Socrates defending a hopeless position against the mob. Socrates standing for the overcoming of man. Socrates in the arena in which he was a master. This is perhaps Socrates at his best. As a brief aside, uh, I want to make a correction here. Uh, The episode way back in season two when we discussed the symposium in passing i use the apology as an example of the worst of socrates from nietzsche's perspective and i simply misspoke there i wasn't thinking of the apology but of the, the last days of socrates encapsulated in the dialogues of crito and phaedo the accounts of his time in prison and while nietzsche is still critical of the socrates of the apology i was just incorrect in that episode to say that the socrates of the apology is the one nietzsche takes most issue with i was really thinking of those other dialogues so minor correction there. The Apologia is not the account of his last days. It's the defense that Socrates gives in his trial. Apology in this sense means just that, a defense. This is Socrates' justification of himself and defense of his character. As discussed, the accusation is that Socrates was impious, that he had corrupted the young men who followed him. To understand the gravity of this crime in ancient athens we have to understand that impiety was a more serious crime than murder euthyphro says for example quote, piety preserves both families and cities and keeps them safe the opposite of what is acceptable to the gods is impious and impiety overturns and destroys all things End quote The ancient Greek religion saw mankind's relationship to their gods as one which was, in some sense, transactional, and in some way a form of patronage. The gods could cause the city to prosper so long as they were properly honored by the traditional rites, exactly as they had been handed down, and so long as they were offered the proper sacrifices, sacrificial meals of wine and the burned flesh of sacrificial sheep and goats. And we must also understand that this charge of impiety had always traditionally been understood to refer to such acts that would disrupt or profane these rites and sacrifices. The religion of the ancient Greek was not concerned so much with one's words or the beliefs of their heart, but rather whether one honored their gods and ancestors in the proper way and maintained the rituals. It was a religion of deeds rather than words. There was no kind of orthodoxy or political ideology or moral belief system that was supposed to be enforced according to the city's laws so long as you obeyed the laws and didn't disrupt the pious sacrifices uh, it was unprecedented to charge somebody with impiety nietzsche writes in his lecture quote freedom of speech was considered sacred there end quote Although he immediately goes on to say that, quote, the trial and death of Socrates prove little against this general proposition, end quote, which may seem like a strange follow-up to that sentiment. Um, But as for why Nietzsche would argue this, he immediately goes on to give a case as to why Socrates was actually executed. And he says it has really nothing to do with any beliefs that Socrates espoused, or any actual uh, sense that he was impious. Uh, And it must be said that this is the same reason that Socrates himself gives when he first begins in his apology to defend himself against what he calls the general slander that he has suffered. Socrates begins not by addressing the specific charge, but the general antipathy towards him that has accumulated for a long time. Socrates claims that these recent charges of impiety and corrupting the youth are explicable only with reference to the general animosity that has been fostered against him. And indeed, the charges are unprecedented given that Socrates has not defamed the Eleusinian mysteries. He has not defiled the Athenian shrines or anything of that sort, which is what impiety had always meant. So, Socrates Dies, the argument goes, not because of the desire to enforce some sort of orthodox religious ideology, and it wasn't because Socrates had opposed his own ideology to the liberal minded city of Athens or anything of that nature. Socrates merely criticizes existing ideas, and he only really gives his own ideas when pressed. Both Nietzsche and Socrates himself argue that his accusers hated him for other reasons. They hated him because he was associated with Alcibiades, whose name was now tarnished with treason and the betrayal of the city. They hated him because he was friends with Critias and Charmides, members of the 30 tyrants who had been overthrown. A general amnesty had been reached after the 30 had fallen from power, but Socrates was still associated with the oligarchs, rather than with the democratic ideology. They hated him most of all because of his habit of approaching and questioning the leading citizens of athens and making them look like fools in front of an audience of young people it wasn't that socrates argued a conflicting ideology with that of the city it was that he'd angered all of the powerful people in the city by seeking to delegitimize their authority this is the sense in which nietzsche does not conceive of the trial of socrates as a referendum on the athenian commitment to free speech in a sense, Nietzsche simply agrees with Socrates' own assessment as to why he was being prosecuted. It really had nothing to do with a conflict of ideas. It was simple hatred of Socrates as a person. One incident in particular that we might consider is documented in Meno, which is a discussion between Socrates and Anitas, a leader among the democratic government, and one of the men who would later become one of Socrates' accusers. In fact, the chief witness against him. Socrates, in this dialogue, criticizes the view of Anitas that democracy will ever necessarily foster the education of virtue. Socrates' counter-argument to this is that men we consider virtuous cannot necessarily be counted on to teach virtue to even their own sons. How then could we expect them to educate, and foster the sons of other men into a path of virtue socrates lists numerous examples you may remember from the episode we did on thucydides in the history of the peloponnesian war the, the sons of pericles the sons of themistocles were not as virtuous as their heroic famous fathers what is the response of anitus to this argument well, eventually he simply becomes enraged and he accuses Socrates of slander and makes some vaguely threatening remarks. Again, these dialogues are all written by Plato, Socrates' student, so maybe he had more articulate arguments in reality that Plato omitted, as is you know somewhat popular to point out. But the fact that Plato records these kinds of interactions shows that there was some kind of response to Socrates that resembled this. I think that's at least a fair supposition to make. So, Nietzsche's assertion here is that it was not his ideology that motivated the accusations. General scholarship has ruled out the notion that Socrates was actually impious, uh, certainly not in any previously understood sense of that charge. Instead, Socrates himself argues in the Apology, quote, What do those who slander me say? It is necessary to read, as it were, their sworn indictment, Socrates is guilty of needless curiosity and meddling interference, inquiring into things beneath the earth and in the sky, making the weaker arguments stronger and teaching others to do the same. The charge is something like that. Indeed, you have seen it for yourselves in a comedy by Aristophanes, a certain Socrates being carried around on the stage, babbling a great deal of other nonsense, of which I understand neither much nor little. End quote. Socrates is referring to a real play here, The Clouds, a comedy by Aristophanes. In The Clouds, wrong logic defeats right logic. And Socrates is portrayed as a buffoon. He misleads others into idle musings. He makes the weaker argument stronger. In other words, sophistry in the modern sense of the word. And while it is commonly known that Socrates is you know, deeply opposed to the sophist school, it's worth saying that to the average person in ancient Greece, Socrates would have been indistinguishable from a sophist. We'll look to Nietzsche's lecture on Socrates once again, where Nietzsche writes, Grote has clarified the sophists. According to the usual notions, they are a sect, according to him, a class, and a state. Plato and his successors were aristocratic teachers, according to the standard view, the established clergy of the Greek nation, and the Sophists were the alternative thinkers. In fact, the Sophists were the clergy, and Plato was the alternative thinker, the socialist who attacked the Sophists, as he attacks poets and statesmen, not as a special sect, but rather as one of the persistent estates of society. For the uneducated masses, Socrates was indistinguishable from the Sophists. In general, entirely naive custom requires no teacher, The more elevated the teacher the more offensive there tragedy and comedy are sufficient the standpoint of aristophanes but the sophists distinguish themselves and that they completely meet the needs of those who employ them they completely deliver what they promise in contrast no one could say why socrates taught he himself excluded wherever he went he produced the feeling of ignorance he embittered men and made them greedy for knowledge End quote. So there is a difference between Socrates and the sophists in this main respect, uh, whether the instruction offered is a service rendered for payment, or whether it is an unasked for crash course in virtue, which often upsets the person involved. Socrates might say it upsets them to their own benefit, that, you know, no course of personal growth is going to be entirely pleasant, of course. It's painful to acknowledge your own ignorance even if that is the first step toward acquiring knowledge but this kind of unasked for philosophical instruction nietzsche points out was so widely rejected and hated by the greek people that they were not inclined to distinguish socrates from the sophists in this way the distinction between the socratics and the sophists would have been of the utmost importance to socrates himself but entirely irrelevant to the people on that jury, and this is reflected in the text. Indeed, the very charge of Aristophanes is that Socrates' method is to misrepresent the truth by dressing up falsehoods, as it were, such that they have the appearance of truth, or are persuasive to the many. This was the attitude of many of the nobility towards philosophy in general. This is what the sophists taught rhetoric, the art of persuasion. The Athenians believed that the proper education of the soul came not from studying philosophy, but poetry, from studying drama. Rhetoric is just an art or a craft, we might say. It's just a technique. It might be useful to know it, but in the same way that learning how to bake or fish or drive horses doesn't educate your soul, that was sort of the Athenian attitude towards philosophy because their understanding of philosophy was what the sophists taught, which was a focus on rhetoric. Rhetoric is, again, an art of mere appearances. The true education of the soul is poetry and drama, as we've said. And therefore, in this sort of cultural orientation towards all of these disciplines, we can see why Socrates and Plato are opposed so strongly to poetry and drama, because they're competing with uh those two disciplines sort of for the same ground right of what the proper education of the soul is so socrates indistinguishable from the sophists uh in the public consciousness we might say emerges and claims that this art through the through the dialectic which to the average athenian is just another form of learning how to speak well which is what the sophists taught Socrates is claiming that this is the way to properly elucidate the truth and therefore learn the virtuous way to act, and so this is the education of one's soul. And in the eyes of the Athenians, this was just considered manipulative. Socrates was considered at best a purveyor of idle speculation, at worst of rhetorical tricks. And so Aristophanes writes in his play Frogs, Quote, Right, it is, and befitting, not by Socrates sitting, idle talk to pursue, stripping tragedy art of all things noble and true. Surely, the mind to school, fine drawn quibbles to seek, fine set phrases to speak, is but the part of the fool. End quote. So Socrates, in his opening statements, immediately draws awareness to the fact that comedic plays exist in which he himself has been portrayed in this unfavorable light. And he asks his jury to consider whether they have heard their friends and peers speak of Socrates in just such a way. As a man who meddles, sticks his nose where it doesn't belong, the man who makes the weak argument stronger. This strategy might seem counterintuitive, since Socrates is calling to mind a negative perspective on who he is but we could say that his intention here is to establish that there's a pre-existing bias, a prejudgment on his character, without which these charges never could have been brought against him. And I suppose you could say his assertion is that if his jury truly searches their hearts, they'll know that this is true. Socrates continues, I'm going to read most of his defense against the general slander against him here, albeit in an abridged form. Quote, Perhaps one of you will ask, Socrates, what is this all about? Whence have these slanders against you arisen? You must surely have been busying yourself with something out of the ordinary. So grave a report and rumor would not have arisen had you not been doing something rather different from most folk. Tell us what it is, so that we may not take action in your case unadvisedly. That, I think, is a fair request. Gentlemen of Athens, I got this name through nothing but a kind of wisdom. What kind? The kind which is peculiarly human. For it may be, I am really wise in that. You surely knew Cherophon. He was my friend from youth, and a friend of your democratic majority. He went into exile with you, and with you he returned. And you know what kind of man he was, how eager and impetuous in whatever he rushed into. Well, he once went to Delphi and boldly asked the oracle whether anyone is wiser than I. Now the Pythia replied, that no one is wiser. And to this his brother here will testify, since Cherophon is dead. When I heard it, I reflected, what does the God mean? What is the sense of this riddling utterance? I know that I am not wise at all. What then does the God mean by saying that I am the wisest? Surely he does not speak falsehood. It is not permitted to him. So I puzzled for a long time over what it meant, and then with great reluctance, I turned to inquire into the matter in some way such as this. I went to someone with a reputation for wisdom, in the belief that, there, if anywhere, I might test the meaning of the utterance, and declare to the oracle that this man is wiser than I am, and you said I was wisest. So I examined him. There is no need to mention a name, but it was someone in political life who produced this effect on me in discussion, gentlemen of Athens, and I concluded That though he seemed wise to many other men and most especially to himself he was not i tried to show him this and thence i became hated by him and by many who were present but i left thinking to myself i am wiser than that man probably neither of us knows anything worthwhile but he thinks he does and yet he does not whereas i do not and i do not think that i do so it seems at any rate that i am wiser in this one small respect i do not think that i know what i do not i then went to another man who was reputed to be even wiser and the same thing seemed true again there too i became hated by him and many others nevertheless i went on perceiving with grief and fear that i was becoming hated but still it seemed necessary to put the god first so i had to go on examining what the oracle meant by testing everyone with a reputation for knowledge i swear that i had some such experience as this it seemed to me as i carried on inquiry in behalf of the god that those most highly esteemed for wisdom fell little short of being most efficient and others reputedly inferior were men of more discernment End quote. so Nietzsche's surprise that Socrates was not persecuted even earlier by Athens speaks to the extraordinary tolerance of Athenian society. In fact, relative at least to the rest of the ancient world, insofar as going around inspiring the hatred of all the high-status people in your society has never been a good idea. It's, you know, it's bringing on your own demise. But Socrates does something in this first part of his defense that is either a rhetorical trick that's too clever for his own good, which Socrates must be therefore very courageous to attempt it, or else it's simply the honest to Apollo truth, and the fact that it is such a potentially risky argument to make indicates all the more that such a pragmatic man as Socrates just has to be speaking out of a commitment to the truth in order to argue this, because he would never think that the Athenians would find this convincing. The argument in so many words can be inferred this way. How can Socrates be impious if his entire raison d'etre, his entire mode of being is a form of devotion to the Delphic God? If Socrates is willing to take the slings and arrows of public hatred for honoring the Delphic God, does this not place him among the most pious of men? Socrates indeed suggests the reason why so many hate him is because he is the most pious. So accordingly, he goes on to state that he interrogated the great poets next, those men considered to be the proper educators of the heart. Socrates says, I took up poems, over which I thought they had taken special pains, and asked them what they meant, so as also at the same time to learn from them. Now I am ashamed to tell you the truth, gentlemen, but still it must be told. There was hardly anyone present who could not give a better account than they of what they themselves had produced so presently i came to realize that poets do not make what they make by wisdom but by a kind of native disposition or divine inspiration exactly like seers and prophets for the latter also utter many fine things but know nothing of the things they speak End quote next on the chopping block are the craftsmen And uh, after them, the teachers of oratory, which again are seen as another kind of technician, right? It's a techni, an art or a craft. So here Socrates is talking, you know, trying to find wisdom among the people who, you know, uh, make bows or uh, fish or sculpt or teach rhetoric or oratory. And, you know, Socrates says they're wise in many respects as regards their own craft but that they do not possess wisdom generally. Socrates argues, quote, It seemed to me that the poets and our capable public craftsmen have exactly the same failing. Because they practiced their own arts well, each deemed himself wise in other things, things of great importance. This mistake quite often obscured their wisdom. End quote. And I'm not sure what the name for this psychological phenomenon is, but it, it it's well noted by modern psychology, that incredibly smart and learned people uh, in one discipline often think that this uh, knowledge or aptitude applies to all these other disciplines, and that they can in fact be some of the worst when it comes to uh, assuming they know things that they don't. And so Socrates concludes his argument with the famous assertion that his wisdom is only in his knowledge of what he does not know not in some special claim to knowledge that no one else has access to but simply i know that i'm ignorant whereas the rest of you think that you know something socrates says those present think i am wise in the things in which i test others but very likely gentlemen it is the god who is wise and by his oracle he means to say that human nature is a thing of little worth or none It appears that he does not mean this fellow Socrates, but uses my name to offer you gentlemen an example, as if he were saying that he among you gentlemen is wisest, who, like Socrates, realizes he is truly worth nothing in respect to wisdom." So Socrates seems to be denigrating his own wisdom as much as the artists and craftsmen and poets and statesmen of Athens. But again, Something to keep in your mind is that these very people, these very professions, largely make up his jury poets, craftsmen, statesmen. The number of them who are going to have sympathies with the philosophers or their arguments um, were always certain to be very few. And in the minds of many of them, philosophers are regarded exactly as Socrates described um, the perspective that Aristophanes has on Socrates. Now, as we mentioned before, Socrates has attacked the sophists somewhat implicitly at the beginning of his apology by suggesting that he can neither be accused of being a sophist teacher of the youth because he's never taken payment for his teachings, um, and you know that the youth simply began to follow him about at all these public debates because they enjoyed watching him tear down the authority figures of Athens. He didn't seek them out. They simply enjoyed his public display of wit and irony but furthermore that socrates says he never had any intention of making himself an authority figure over anyone he never has had any intention of seducing anyone from their away from the religion of their fathers instead he says consider one of the popular sophist teachers who's recently come to town and already gathered a following of young men all eager to offer him purses full of coin in exchange for his teachings of rhetorical skill. Socrates says, I've never done anything like that. We might recall Nietzsche's coinage that Socrates was the greatest fencing master of Athens. When it came to the Battle of Wits, Socrates was simply unmatched. And that is something that Nietzsche seems to have some admiration for. But surely Socrates must have known that by admitting this, that the youth came to follow him because of his skill in debate that this could imply that he is exactly like one of those sophists that the average person was already likely to confuse him for, because one could infer that it was the mastery of rhetoric shown by Socrates that the young men of the city found most attractive. There's a great irony in the use of rhetorical technique throughout Socrates' apology, and that irony commences right at the beginning of the speech when he asks the judges to forgive him If he does not have the command of oratory that others possess, that he might use words and speech that uh, is commonly heard in the agora, you know, the common expressions that one hears in the marketplace. He's saying, you know, I'm just a man with street smarts, right? I'm not educated like all of you, so forgive me for being in general uneducated about the art of speechcraft, untrained in the art of rhetoric. He claims not to know the ways of the law courts, having never been accused before. And now being something of a clumsy old man he essentially just asks the jury forgive me for my inability to give the proper type of speech that you would expect to hear according to all the oratorical conventions and yet socrates then proceeds to give a speech which is rhetorically eloquent it contains all of the so-called five heads of the traditional defense argument in greek law and I'm going to read from R. E. Allen's commentary on Socrates' Apology. He says of Socrates' speech that, quote, as Burnett points out, it is a rhetorical parody of rhetoric. The diction is far removed from the marketplace. It is periodic and marked by the neatly balanced antitheses characteristic of Greek rhetorical style. As with diction, so with structure. The speech, having begun with a proper exordium or introduction, proceeds to a prothesis, a statement of the case and plan of plea. It then offers a refutation, first directed against the old accusers, who have stirred up prejudice against Socrates, and then against the actual charges brought up by Miletus and the support of Anetus and Lycon. There follows a digression, normally used to win the audience to the speaker's side, here used to describe socrates's pe- peculiar mission to athens the speech then closes with a well-marked peroration as dyer and seymour remark quote, "all the laws of oratorical art are here carefully observed though the usual practices of oratory are sharply criticized" End quote. so the fascinating thing about socrates's approach to his own defense then is that he begins by suggesting that he does not possess the expertise to make a rhetorical argument, and that he makes a perfect rhetorical argument. We might regard this kind of approach as ironic, and uh, maybe we would have some degree of respect for the brilliance of Socrates in doing this. But the ancient Greek word for irony, ironya, is perhaps instructive to consider here in the kinds of connotations kinds of associations that Athenians would have made with this character trait. ironya was not a virtue. It was seen as something like a vice, a form of soft dishonesty. Allen points out that it was a trait commonly associated with foxes. The person who spoke ironically was devious or clever in the manner of a fox, a, a trickster. Socrates effectively has argued something that would seem to be disproven by the manner in which he has argued it. This would not be something the Athenians would have been charmed or flattered by. They would have likely been put on guard that they were being deceived in some way if they detected any hint of the ironic in what Socrates was doing. To quote again from Allen's commentary, As Aristotle remarks, one rule of rhetoric is to make your character look right. This Socrates does not do another rule is to put your audience in the right frame of mind to make them feel as aristotle puts it friendly and placable if you meant to persuade it is best not to offend socrates does little enough to make his judges feel friendly and placable uh, end quote and then further down uh, the passage continues quote, after remarking that his habit of cross-questioning people itself associated with sophistry and with making the weaker argument stronger has been a source not only of prejudice but hatred he gives a public specimen of it in his cross examination of meletus the results are devastating but in the circumstances tell against socrates himself he attacks politicians poets and craftsmen for claiming knowledge of things of which they are ignorant and he does this before a jury of 500 men most of whom had served in public office most of whom were craftsmen and most of whom regarded poets as a source of moral and religious instruction, end quote. So Socrates uses rhetoric with no regard for the pragmatic application of rhetoric. His speech shows a command of oratory, but an intention to use it to go against all the conventions of oratory, uh, which are aimed at persuading the audience. And so this is what one might call High IQ 4D chess caliber trolling. Socrates comes at a jury of people in which, uh, in a cultural context which distrusts irony, and he comes at them with a speech that contains multiple levels of irony, levels which they were probably unable to grasp, but if they had, they would probably have resented in the highest degree. So then, when we come to his cross examination of Miletus as uh, Alan remarked on it's worth looking at it now. Uh, It constitutes a more concrete defense against these specific charges that were brought against him. So, when it comes to the charge of impiety, Socrates' tactic here is to catch his accuser in a contradiction. Miletus has already sworn in his charge against Socrates that Socrates has both dissuaded the youth from following the gods of the city, but has also introduced foreign gods. Socrates not only argues that the god he follows is the Delphic god, which is not foreign, but later catches Miletus in a contradiction on this point. Quote, Socrates, is that what you think, that I acknowledge no gods at all? Miletus, no, none whatever. Socrates, you cannot be believed, Miletus, even, I think, by yourself. Gentlemen of Athens, I think this man who stands here before you is insolent and unchastened. And has brought this suit precisely out of insolence and unchastened youth he seems to be conducting a test of propounding a riddle will socrates the wise man realize how neatly i contradict myself or will i deceive him and the rest of the audience for certainly it seems clear that he is contradicting himself in his indictment it is as though he were saying socrates is guilty of not acknowledging gods and acknowledges gods yet surely this is to jest End quote. so catches Miletus in a contradiction. When it comes to the charge of corrupting the youth, his tactic is to lead Miletus through a series of questions uh, in a reduction to absurdity. So, Socrates asks, if I corrupt the youth, then Miletus, surely you must know who properly educates the youth. Uh, You know, if you're going to say who's corrupting them, surely you know uh, you must have a standard by which to compare that to who is the good example, who is not corrupting the youth. And Miletus asserts that all of the jurists here present don't corrupt the youth. They all properly educate them. And Socrates continues questioning him. what about everyone in the audience? Yes. What about everyone on the council? Yes. What about everyone in the city? And he says, yes, except for you, Socrates. And so Socrates asks, well, is it the same when it comes to training a horse? Is everyone good at training horses? except for a single man who corrupts them by training them badly. You know, everyone would laugh at that. That's a reduction to absurdity because you would recognize it's only a select few who have the capacity or the knowledge to properly train and raise horses. Most of us would, so to speak, corrupt them by being unable to handle them, and raise. we would raise them badly because we don't know what we're doing. Socrates says it's the same for human beings. The proposition that the problem is only a single man who goes about corrupting human beings is ludicrous, educating and cultivating a person is a special skill or talent. Most men will be probably inadequate when it comes to this task. Saying everyone can do it is as absurd as, I mean, and the absurdity of it is revealed by saying, oh, well, everyone could do it. Well, except you. You're the special case. So Socrates makes Miletus look ridiculous from the standpoint of logic because Miletus, you know, really what he does is he punts on this one. He does this because he doesn't want to be forced into into the position of giving a definition of what a virtuous man would look like, who the proper teacher of virtue might be, because any description he gives will then be an affirmative claim, and that's now an ample target for the rhetorical destruction of Socrates. So he avoids that and remains vague and nonspecific, But Socrates then uses that to push him into saying that everyone is a good teacher of virtue. Everyone except you. (laughs) So again, as Alan suggests, I think it's true Socrates is relatively devastating in this exchange. He outmatches Miletus in the Battle of Wits. And yet this very behavior that he demonstrates is the kind of cross-examination that he's carried out hundreds of times. It's the very thing that earned him the hatred and animosity of the mob that is now tasked with judging him. Socrates has already indicated that he's aware of this. He says it's the true cause of the charges against him. And yet, in the course of the trial, he does it again. So if he truly believes in the arguments he gave in the first part of his refutation, that the real crime he's committed is not impiety or corrupting the youth, but simply stirring hatred in the hearts of the Athenians, he should at least understand from a practical standpoint, if nothing else, that doing something like rhetorically destroying Miletus with facts and logic in front of this audience will only stir up more such hatred. And yet he acts in exactly the opposite way of what such an insight might suggest to a more prudent person. As for an explanation of this behavior, we might look to the Exordium once more. It's actually the very beginning of the speech where Socrates says the following, quote, Among their many falsehoods, I was especially surprised by one. They said, you must be on guard lest I deceive you, since I am a clever speaker. To have no shame at being directly refuted by facts, when I show myself in no way clever with words, that, I think, is the very height of shamelessness. Unless, of course, they call a man a clever speaker if he speaks the truth. If that is what they mean, why, I would even admit to being an orator. Though not after their fashion. End quote. And so, perhaps a further layer of irony is that Socrates is correct, insofar as his entire mode of approach here, while it demonstrates a great depth of knowledge about the oratorical form of the law court, the techniques of rhetoric, uh, it still shows that he's very unclever in the way that he wields these weapons. He's being foolish, but in a very clever way you know, clever like a fox, right? In a way that was sure to enrage those judging him had they perceived it. And so perhaps from another perspective, Socrates is telling the truth. He's not a rhetorician. He cannot employ persuasive rhetoric. His use of rhetoric is intentionally anti-persuasive, and he has no other choice because of his commitment to the Delphic God so we return to maybe a more favorable view of Socrates, the heroic view of Socrates, as implied by Nietzsche, which is alluded to in the digression of the apology in which Socrates describes that special mission to Athens. So we're going to look at how Socrates says it in his own words, quote, perhaps someone may say, are you not ashamed Socrates at having pursued such a course that you now stand in danger of being put to death? To him I would make a just reply, you are wrong, sir, if you think that a man worth anything at all should take thought for danger in living and dying. He should look when he acts to one thing, whether what he does is just or unjust, the works of a good man or a bad one. By your account, those demigods and heroes who laid down their lives at Troy would be of little worth. Skipping further down, Socrates continues, quote, For to fear death, gentlemen, is nothing but to think one is wise when one is not. For it is to think one knows what one does not know. No man knows death, nor whether it is not the greatest of all goods. And yet men fear it as though they well knew it to be the worst of evils. Gentlemen, I at least am perhaps superior to most men here and just in this. And if I were to claim to be wiser than anyone else, it would be in this. That I have no satisfactory knowledge of things in the place of the dead. I do not think I do. I do know that to be guilty of disobedience to a superior, be he God or man, is shameful evil. So, as against evils I know to be evils, I shall never fear or flee from things which for aught I know may be good. End quote. And Socrates goes on to say, that supposing they were to dismiss the charges against him but perhaps forbid him from practicing philosophy or speaking of it or teaching it any longer upon pain of death, Socrates would tell them quite easily that he'll obey the Delphic God and not any of you. The God commands him to the greatest possible excellence of his soul and he's not going to sacrifice this for the commands of mere mortals even from those who are among the best and most admirable people around, the Athenians. So he does smooth their feathers a bit. He does butter them up a bit, you know. But, you know, he's already said the wisdom and the greatness of man is nothing compared with that of the gods. So um, even though the Athenians may be the best around, in comparison to the wisdom of the gods, he's going to go with the wisdom of the gods. As for what Socrates means by his special mission, as he calls it, he goes on to describe his daemon, Uh, as we've referenced before, but here are Socrates' own words, quote, That I am just that, a gift from the god to the city, you may recognize from this. It scarcely seems a human matter merely that I should take no thought for anything of my own, endure the neglect of my house and its affairs for these long years now, and ever attend to yours, going to each of you in private like a father or elder brother, persuading you to care for virtue. If I got something from it, if I took pay for this kind of exhortation, that would explain it, but even my accusers cannot provide witnesses to say that I ever took pay or asked for it. For it is enough, I think, to provide my poverty as witness to the truth of what I say. Perhaps it may seem peculiar that I go about in private advising men and busily inquiring, and yet do not enter your assembly in public to advise the city. The reason is a thing you have heard me mention, and many times in many places, that something divine and godlike comes to me. I have had it since childhood. It comes as a kind of voice, and when it comes, it always turns me away from what I am about to do, but never toward it. That is what opposed my entering political life." The way Nietzsche interpreted Socrates' daemon, which he discusses in both Birth of Tragedy and Twilight of Idols, um, is what Nietzsche focuses on is the detail that Socrates here describes the daemon as only acting negatively or reactively to prevent him from taking a course of action. It doesn't encourage, it intercedes, stops Socrates from doing anything unjust or unvirtuous. But he doesn't describe it as creating or motivating virtuous action. It's a negative power. And it's on account of this special power that Socrates regards himself as a gift from the Delphic god to the city. He's a god's tool for helping the Athenians to realize the dictum, know thyself, and... Like on the macro scale within Socrates, he has this voice from the god that intercedes to stop him from doing anything unvirtuous. Socrates, similarly, is that voice within Athenian society that intercedes to stop Athens from doing anything unvirtuous. And when they are forced to know themselves, when Socrates holds up the perfect mirror of his cutting logic, they see men reflected back at them who are ignorant, who claim to know things that they don't. Socrates' argument is that they therefore engage in that age old practice of shooting the messenger. They simply hate Socrates for showing them who they really are. Nietzsche's comment on this daemon is that Socrates represents an inversion of the typical person, or the healthy person, we might say, the the normal function of the instincts. Nietzsche says, in the normal healthy functioning, the instincts or impulses are creative or active, and the intellect. Is a faculty that's uh, passive or reactive. But in Socrates, this is flipped. His instinct is negative. It emerges to halt action, an instinct which always dissuades. Meanwhile, in Socrates, it's the intellect that is creative. The intellect gives birth. This, Nietzsche later describes as a monstrous feature, a mutation, if you will. This, coupled with the poverty that Socrates uh, makes proud mention of, fact that he was widely reported to be rather ugly, finally his plebeian ancestry. All of this serves as evidence for Nietzsche's case that Socrates is the embodied wrath of the weak, ugly underclass. He's a monstrous faculty of reason, possessed by a weak physiology, grown out of a weak physiology, and thus grown out of control. This is the only faculty where the will to power can express itself, is within the intellect, within the dialectic. And so, even as early as these pre-Platonic lectures, he associates Socrates and his student Plato with the socialists, and would later write in Twilight of Idols, dialectic is ever the weapon of the underclass. Socratic reason is an attempt to bind all those nobles with special claims or special religious privilege, bind all of them within the same universal law of logic, equalize them in some sense. And yet... What we want to do, I think, for our purposes in this episode is take that perspective of later Nietzsche, which is insightful and important to understand, and set it maybe off to the side or side by side with the perspective we're looking at in this episode. Because also within the passages we just looked at, Socrates shows this absolute conquest over the fear of death, not because death is stated to be better than life, but simply because we have no idea what death is. Through logic, his single-minded devotion to reason as an all-powerful force, Socrates, through the intellect, the monstrous intellect, overcomes the fear of mortality. One of these great existential problems of mankind. And if anyone's to doubt that he's actually done this, I mean, like, you know, he's simply describing himself this way, simply arguing that he's overcome the fear of death through the use of the intellect. How do we know he actually did? Well, we can't doubt his actions. Which show a complete disregard for his own well-being or continued survival and in invoking this he makes the comparison to the great heroes of the hellenic epics the trojan war for example and we might consider that the boldness in declaring himself to be literally a gift from god could be seen as a form of what nietzsche would call a a noble valuation socrates is a gift from god because his special talent for virtue and justice is obviously the most important thing in the world And he's always given it freely as a gift to everyone else. He has made his life's mission to bestow virtue on the Athenians. And as such, he evaluates himself as being of the highest good. And so we might refer to, beyond good and evil, um, the phrase the noble soul has reverence for itself. Furthermore, Socrates attacks Miletus on the basis of the order of rank. Some people will be better at educating the youth to virtue and to justice. Some people will be better at this than others, and the vast majority will be completely unable to do it, just as every specialized art or craft requires someone who's singularly devoted to it. And Socrates stands very subtly then against a sort of blind democratic sentiment that all are equal in all their capacities. Um, Again, this is the very topic that stirs the ire of Aenitas, beyond all reasonable reactions in the dialogue we mentioned, uh, Mino. Thus, perhaps an argument can be made that Socrates has an instinct for the order of rank, that justice and virtue are something that has have to be uh, attained, they have to be worked at. Um, some will be superior in others in their discipline in pursuing these things. And well, Nietzsche says in one passage in Beyond Good and Evil, the instinct for the order of rank might well determine the order of rank of philosophers. So even though Socrates is plebeian in origin, in many ways he manifests a noble mindset, according to Nietzsche. He lives dangerously. He pursues life as a means to knowledge, knowledge as a means to virtue. He has reverence for himself and his own type in an unashamed sort of way, and he dares to introduce new values into the world. In this case, the project of science, skepticism, and justice as attained by reason. Indeed, Socrates takes his flirtation with danger to new heights when his sentence is being decided. Socrates was, as we said, convicted by a very narrow margin. Socrates therefore faced execution. The way the Athenian justice system worked, however, is that Socrates then had the opportunity to propose a counter penalty. His followers urged him to suggest a modest fine instead of the death penalty, and given the narrow margins of his conviction, it was almost certain... That the majority of jurists would have accepted this counter penalty but socrates ignores this prudent advice he says instead the following quote i undertook to persuade each of you not to care for anything which belongs to you before first caring for yourselves so as to be good and wise as possible nor to care for anything which belongs to the city before caring for the city itself and so too with everything else in the same way now what do I deserve to suffer for being this sort of man some good thing gentlemen of Athens if penalty is really to be assessed according to desert. what then is fitting for a poor man who has served his city well and needs leisure to exhort you why gentlemen nothing is more fitting for such a man than to be fed in the Prytaneum at the common table of the city yes and far more fitting than for one of you who has been an Olympic victor in the single horse or two or four horse chariot races for he makes you seem happy, whereas I make you happy in truth. And he does not need subsistence, and I do. If then I propose a penalty I justly deserve, I propose public subsistence in the prutanium. quote. So Socrates says his penalty should be to be rewarded, if it's to be a truly just penalty. You know, feed me out of the public fund in the manner that they feed the victors of the Olympics who have brought glory to their city. But Socrates says, I'm a more deserving recipient of this honor than they. I've educated your minds. I've educated the city to be wise and just in all things. That's more valuable than physical prowess or beauty or victory in some meaningless competition. That's all uh, transitory compared to reason, this universal, enduring, binding thing. Again, this type of response from Socrates has exactly the effect that one would expect it to have and by a far wider margin than the one with which he was convicted socrates is sentenced to death meaning that some among the jury who did not originally vote to convict socrates voted to give him the death penalty rather than to reward him with public subsistence this aspect of the trial of socrates can perhaps tell us more about human nature than anything else in the apology. Or perhaps we'll say more about human nature when it is driven by resentment. Thus, as Allen argues in his commentary, the two layers of irony mesh when one considers the entire apologia quote, the man who cannot give a speech, gives a speech, the speech he gives proves that he cannot give a speech. The two levels are so related as to turn apparent falsehood into truth, end quote. There's a level of meta-irony there. That is, in and of itself, rhetorical brilliance, the very thing that Socrates always seemed opposed to because it ran counter to the duty to center truth as of prime importance, not appearance, right? And yet, perhaps the most interesting thing about the speech is its appearance, its style, the way that it's delivered, the technique, the rhetoric, rather than the content. Socrates' speech harnesses rhetoric for anti-persuasion in order to act out the valuation of putting virtuous action above self-preservation. Socrates says that the true charges against him are that people think he makes the weaker argument stronger. And yet, the way in which the levels of irony interact with the speech that he gives almost serves to turn falsehood into truth to make the weaker argument stronger. Um, And there's an intentionality behind this. Uh, There's an irony to this, again, as we've said. So after the penalty is decided, Socrates is, of course, given the opportunity to make a statement to address the assembly of judges that has condemned him to death. I want to read an excerpt from that statement now, the very last section of the apology, and I'll be abridging this uh, a bit i'm just sort of taking out two chunks and putting them together quote my accustomed oracle which is divine always came quite frequently before in everything opposing me even in trivial matters if i was about to err and now a thing has fallen to my lot which you also see a thing which some might think and do in fact believe to be the ultimate among evils but the sign of the god did not oppose me early this morning when I left my house or when I came up here to the courtroom or at any point in my argument in anything I was about to say and yet frequently in other arguments it has checked me right in the middle of speaking but today it has not opposed me in any way in none of my deeds in none of my words what do I take to be the reason I will tell you very likely what has fallen to me is good and those among us who think that death is an evil are wrong You must recognize that this one thing is true. There is not evil for a good man, either in living or in dying, and the gods do not neglect his affairs. What has now come to me did not occur of its own initiative. It is clear to me that to die now and be released from my affairs is better for me. That is why the sign did not turn me back, and I bear no anger whatever toward those who voted to condemn me or to my accusers and yet it was not with this in mind that they accused and convicted me they thought to do harm and for that they deserve blame but this much i would ask of them when my sons are grown gentlemen exact a penalty of them give pain to them exactly as i gave pain to you if it seems to you that they care more for wealth or anything else than they care for virtue and if they seem to be something and are nothing rebuke them as i rebuked you Because they do not care for what they ought, because they think themselves something and are worth nothing. And should you do that, both I and my sons will have been justly dealt with at your hands. But it is now the hour of parting, I to die and you to live. Which of us goes to the better is unclear to all but the God. And so, While we find much of what Nietzsche might classify as nihilism, or even a weariness for life, embrace of the end, things that could be interpreted that way, right, I cannot help but think that there is something of the attitude of Socrates, having accepted his fate so vigorously, so enthusiastically, so affirmatively, I can't help but think of the amor fati, the love of one's fate, And one stands to wonder whether Nietzsche, while studying the Greeks for the first time, perhaps got one of his first glimpses of one of the most beautiful expressions of the love of fate here in the Apology. Socrates states that he has done everything according to the command of his inner voice, and he has the certainty that he has done everything he needed to do in life. And so, for the good man, which he has absolute certainty that he is, affirming himself as a good man, he has nothing to fear in death or in life. Perhaps Socrates' death could then be seen, from a certain perspective, as an example of the consummating death, which Zarathustra says is one of the highest virtues. Of course, we will not settle the contradictions in Nietzsche's thought that concern his view of Socrates. We will not unravel the many paradoxes in explaining the significance of Socrates to the Western world, or to philosophy, or to Nietzsche. We might only say that in the Apology, we get the best glimpse at Socrates as Lebensphilosoph, the philosopher of life, whose death blesses life and affirms life, and here it could certainly be argued Socrates refuses to let death be a condemnation. The fearless portrait of Socrates suggests, to me at least, the kind of man who dared to build his temple of reason on the slopes of Mount Vesuvius. That's all for today, everyone. Signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.